If you're not mad about ads, and that's fair enough, choose the Dave McWilliams Plus option on Apple Podcasts, and you can hear this podcast in all its glory without the ads. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is podcast time. Now, I am just back from Poland, which I'm going to bore John about in two seconds. And he didn't even bring a sticker rock. I didn't bring a sticker rock. Or a fridge I, magnet. I fridge magnet. Exactly, exactly. A Polski, a Solidarnosk badge. <laughs> yes. Do you remember the Solidarnosk I movement? Do. In I do. I remember it really well. I have a fantastic well. story. Lech Lech Valenza. It's a fantastic story of just how out of touch Gareth Fitzgerald our former Taoiseach was with the Irish people Go on. surrounding Lech Valencia, Solidarność in Poland. So the year is 1982. Yeah. Solidarity happens. It's a massive, massive international human rights story. It's Russia against the Soviet Union against Poland. It's an mm. uprising. It's the Gdansk shipyard. It's all that yeah. sort of stuff, yeah. right? It's like third or fourth on the news in Ireland, right? Yeah. 1982, 83 is also the period in Ireland where there is three or four elections, right? Okay. Okay. Right. So it's the Hawhey yeah. versus Fitzgerald sort of thing, okay? Yeah. And Fitzgerald is... I had my head in other things at this stage. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. <laughs> yeah. I'm so glad. Fitzgerald is canvassing in Cork and he gets out of a bus and he sees a sea of red. Mm. Now, you remember the solidarity colours were red. Mm. So red, red, and white. red and white. So he yeah. sees a sea of red and white. Yeah. And he gets off. He's in Cork now. Yeah, yeah. In the summer. Yeah. And he gets off the bus and he says to the people, I didn't realise you were so moved by the solidarity struggle in Poland. And the Cork fella says, it's the fucking colours of Cork, you langer. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> That's why you should never have an economist running the country. Yeah. That's why you should never. <laughs> anyway, oh, I, man. I'll tell you what, I'm going to tell He you, could be forgiven, though, for. for I'll tell you, I, today's podcast is all going to be about that part of the world Poland, Ukraine. We're going to be talking about, I think, what is the biggest issue in geopolitics oh. in the next year, which is this Ukrainian counteroffensive. Yes. Which is starting and has already started in Bakhmut. And you can sense that it's actually starting yep. all over Ukraine. And uh, a few thoughts on where it all might go. Yeah. Well, uh, well, I tell you, I was in Poland this week, right? I went on the most amazing walking tour of Warsaw. Oh, right, yeah. I didn't do the old town. I didn't do the ghetto. I went on this tour of the other side. So With a guide. Amazing, amazing guide, right? Yeah. So huge city. We're going to do a piece on Poland. Right. right. Because the economy there is surging. It's after Ireland and China. 
and one or two of the, let's say, Far Eastern countries. It's the fastest growing economy in the world. Right, okay. It's the only Central European economy that has actually delivered on the promise of liberalism, democracy. What, what's driving it? And it's because it has become the workshop of Germany. Okay, so basically yeah, yeah. it's outsourced a huge amount of German production to Poland, which is much cheaper. But the fascinating thing about Poland, I'm going to tell you about the tour in a second, but the fascinating thing about Poland is it has got very, very rich and yet it has got very, very conservative. So our assumption yeah. is, like in Ireland, as you get rich, you become more liberal. As you become liberal, you become more rich. What the Poles have done is they've become very, very wealthy. Mm. And, and you really feel it in Warsaw. Warsaw is a majestic capital. It's like, as I described to my son, it's, it's, like, it's like Berlin without the Germans, right? It's <laughs> okay. huge and it's got amazing infrastructure. It's all seen, Russian built from oh, the... No, 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 all new. So, so basically, the, okay. the last 20 years, the Poles have gone on this massive construction. You know, Polish construction wasn't yeah. just in... Blanchestown. Yeah. Yes. Right? You know, you always think that it was actually everywhere. So the, it, it's, they've amazing metros, they've amazing train system. I got the train from Warsaw down to Krakow, high speed rail. Yeah, something I was in Krakow, which never, is a beautiful place. Amazing place, yeah, right? Yeah. And then I got a train to another really obscure part. And again, the whole train system works really well, Wi Fi, all that sort of stuff. But motorways, trains, all the infrastructure in Ireland mm. that we don't have, that we may well have if we use this wealth fund, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 But the old city, was 85% destroyed by the Germans. So the Nazis, after the Warsaw Uprising, the ghetto uprising in 43, the Jewish ghetto mm, uprising, yep. then the Warsaw Uprising in 44, right? Then, and the Russians were sitting on the other side of the Vistula, just watching the whole thing, because Stalin wanted to destroy the Poles, right. as well as destroy the Germans. Yeah. So he decided, let the Germans destroy the Poles, let them sap their energy destroying the Poles, and then we'll destroy the Germans. Yeah. And we'll get both of them destroyed. Yeah, we're going to mop up. We'll mop up the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. So the Red Army, and I, I, I stood where the Red Army sat, and they watched the uprising, and they didn't even cross the river. They could have done it in a moment. But they just watched, and they waited, and they waited. But 87% of the old city of Warsaw was completely flattened by the Germans. Yeah. Right? The Germans left, and they bombed the whole thing. And Hitler said, nobody will ever live in that city again. So what the Poles did in the 50s, it's an amazing story. They got the old city's plans from the 16th century and they rebuilt it brick by brick by brick. So you're no walking around really? what you think is a medieval city and it was actually built. Oh, they went back to the, the old, old designs they, as yeah, well. Yeah, everything. So it looks as if right. you're in a medieval city. It was all built in the 1950s. That's the first thing. The second thing is the Soviet. It is amazing. The Soviet architecture is outrageous. It's off the scale sort of. Yeah. If, you, if you know that big blocky mental, kind of grey blocky. If you ever see that Fritz Lang movie Metropolis, right? It's, mm, it's yeah, exactly yeah, like yeah. that. Everything looks like a, a Soviet version of the Empire State. Yeah. And there's a huge big, it's called Dom Kulturi, which means culture house, which is always a place you want to avoid <laughs> amongst the communism. I don't want to go to the culture house because nasty things happen there, right? But I was in this extraordinary suburb called Praga, mm. which is on the other banks. So the bank that wasn't the old town. And there was a big building. I asked the guide where it was, and it had, used to be an orphanage. Okay. And it was run by a guy called Janusz Kurczak, who was a, a doctor, Polish doctor, a, devoted his entire life to looking after children. Mm. And his orphanage was a Jewish orphanage on the non-Jewish ghetto side of the river. Then the Nazis come in, they round up all the Jews together in the ghetto, 
uh, put a wall around it. Horrendous stuff. I mean, it's mm. the ghetto tours is well worth doing. Yeah, yeah. But fascinating, Korczak was known all over the world as an animator, as a children's writer, as a, an enormously influential person in education. And when the Nazis liquid, they, they liquidated the ghetto and they sent the people to Treblinka. And Treblinka wasn't even a work camp. Yeah. It was an extermination camp. They gassed yeah, them yeah, yeah, all, yeah. Yeah. starting with kids. And the Nazis recognised Korczak, the Nazi guards, and they yeah. offered him, we can give you a way out. You don't have to go. And he said, no way. And he, knowing that the entire orphanage of, and these are kids 12, 11, yeah. were going to be gassed. He said, no, I'm going to go with them. And the narrative, the details of him bringing these kids, he knew they were all going to be killed. I and mean, it's an extraordinary thing. So he's my latest hero. Wow. Okay, so yeah. I'm going to I'm going to go back to him. So the podcast will be devoted to Janusz Korczak. No, sure, but, absolutely, but, let's but, do but that. I'll just say this. When you're in a city like Warsaw, the sense of European history is much more evident. Every corner you turn, you think, these are places that horrible things are, where horrible things happened. Mm. You know, once you go into that part of Europe, the Second World War in particular yeah. is still very, very alive. Well, you're very, um, you've spent a lot of time being sent there, the various different banks when you weren't fired. Yeah, and no, no, before I was fired. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 you were yeah, fired. yeah, yeah. But yeah. you're like, in Serbia, you spent a lot of time in Serbia. Serbia and it's, it's and, a country I really like. Yeah. Uh, and Belgrade is a city I really like. And Croatia and all of the... The, the Slavic kind of, world. The Slavic world. Yeah, I, yeah, I have over the years. And I don't, I don't really know what the attraction was Certainly, I don't know what their attraction to me was, but I, I, but it's always been, I remember when the wall came down, being particularly moved by the fact that this was a big event in our lives and there wouldn't be a bigger event. I remember thinking yeah. that as a, as a very young man, you know, as a, and I, I remember I went, to, I went to Russia first in 1986, 87 as a student. Mm. And I became very interested in, just Russian art and literature and books and all that sort of malarkey. And also the Soviet thing fascinated me, yeah. as it did, because it was so alien. It was so alien. And yeah, you're right. So I've, I've spent a huge amount of time in that part of the world. And I, I think that it kind of, it's important for us to try and understand the Slavic mind to get a handle on the Europe we live in. Yeah. So when we were brought up, we were very much schooled in the idea that Europe was a Western European phenomenon. Mm. It's basically West Germany. It was France. It was the lowlands. Yeah. And of course, Britain. And we're all the good guys. And we're all the good guys. Yeah. And then I went to university, I remember, in, in Belgium. I remember doing a master's in Belgium. And beginning, I read a book called The Sorrow of Belgium, which was a very, it's a classic of Belgian Flemish literature. Mm. And it was about the compromises that Belgian people made in the Second World War. And not just Belgium, but the people who lived in the city that I was studying, which was Bruges and Ghent and Antwerp, that part yeah, of the world, yeah, sort yeah. of Flemish part of the world. And that always intrigued me as being, you know, a story we'd never heard, this kind of uncomfortable truths about what, what had happened over the last. And again, I was there in the late 80s. So the people who were actually involved in those decisions, those compromises, were still alive. Right. You know, yeah, you yeah, go yeah. to a bar and you've talked to these outlads and whatever. And I worked in a, in, in a Flemish bar for a while as a, a lounge boy. Flemish can, can, lounge I just, boy. can I just stop you there? Didn't you at one stage write for a Flemish newspaper, football, football reports? I wrote, I wrote football reports. In Flemish. 
<laughs> well, it was bad. It was spoofer. It was translated. It was translated. It was translated. It was the first chat CPT, right? It was it was Google Translate yeah. before translations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was I was a big fan. I used to go to see FC Brugge. Yeah. Which and you know Mechelen and Anderlecht and the whole the whole Flemish league. And it was like a student English language sort of thing. Yeah. Anyway, but yeah, so I, I enjoyed it then and I got kind of into that that world and trying to understand because you know that part of the world fascinates me and then since the late 90s and the early 2000s Europe's axis of gravity has shifted to the east to the Slavic world mm. and I've always thought the Slavs think differently to us I mean I spend a lot of time as you know in Croatia every year and Croatia is a bizarre combination because the people look Italian, but they're actually Slavic. So it's right. very strange. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. on the one hand, you think they're all going to be, you know, and particularly the Dalmatians where we live, yeah. which is which is the Italian part, or let's say the Adriatic part of Croatia. Yeah. So Croatia has got the internal part and then the Adriatic part and the seaside so part. They're all good looking and they're good all good looking and tall. Very good footballers. All very very dark. Yeah. You know, yeah. they they have Italian diets. They have lots of Italian words in the yeah. Yeah. in Croatian. But how do they think differently then? They, What's the uh, Slavs think in conspiracies and we don't. And this is we're going to get lots of income in here from our Slavic listeners. Mm. But this is what struck me. And this is what struck me over the years because I've, I've worked with Russians and I've worked with Ukrainians and I've worked with with Serbs. Is that the way in which Slavic people seem to think about the world is very different from the way in which Western Europeans, and I'm talking about particularly us people out in the islands, yeah. think about the world. So if a Slavic person is presented with the story, this thing happened, mm. most Irish people say, okay, that's grand. Who was the protagonist? Who was the victim? Yeah, How did yeah. it happen, right? The Slavs always say, do you think it really happened? <laughs> Do you think that so they think in conspiracy? But, but is this a hangover from kind of the old Soviets where everyone there's was a, there's paranoid? A, there's an element of that, certainly in Yugoslavia, in yeah. former Yugoslavia, there's an element of you know Titoism, which yeah. was kind of everyone was spying on everyone else, everyone and, was spying on Titoism, was kind of you know Mickey Mouse communism, right? It wasn't the real thing, but you don't forget that Tito said to Stalin, Can you imagine how mad Tito must have been? He says to Stalin in 1945. 1945, 46, mm. where Stalin has rolled over the Nazis, rolled over half of Europe. He is putting puppet states in Bulgaria, in Romania, yeah. in Czechoslovakia, etc. And Tito basically says to Stalin, come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. <laughs> he actually says, the Yugoslavs said, the Germans lost more divisions per head of population in Yugoslavia than they did in Russia. Right. The Yugoslav partisans, and my next door neighbor was one, passed away a couple of years ago. A guy, old guy called Mladen Blacic. And he was a he was a teenage partisan. So we sit up talking all night in right. Croatia, having over little 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 she glasses. Recorded all that stuff. He was amazing. He could speak English perfectly. He was a poet, he, an amazing person, right? Yeah, yeah. But he had been in the partisan drive north from an island called Viz, which yeah. is a beautiful island in Croatia, where they actually have a rugby team and a cricket team. Oh, right. Because, the, Bri because the Brits held on to Viz during the Second World War as the one island in the Adriatic. Yeah. And they converted all the locals into playing cricket and rugby. Jeez. Right? And, and then they named a comic after it. They... <laughs> one of the great comics of <laughs> the 1990s. Absolutely. We could go on a little segue in there. You know, that's not. That's to not. bust our gonad and he's unfeasibly large. <laughs> Testicles. Anyway. But so the in Yugoslavia, definitely there was a hangover from Tito. However, I think it's deeper. I think there's I think there's a deeper, particularly as you get into Russia, right? So we forget that Russians have never, ever 
had a democratic government apart from one or two years of the Yeltsin years. Mm. So this is a country that went from serfdom. Imagine, right? So in 1863, serfdom is abandoned by the czars or by the by one of the czars, the more yeah. reforming czars, who was then, of course, what happened to him? He was murdered, yes. right? He was assassinated. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They go from that to loose serfdom. Then in 1917, they go from the Tsar to communism. They have no history of bottom-up democracy. Yeah. They've no his they've all this history of the top down, the big man at the top, of which Putin fits that role beautifully. Mm. So I am the big guy, everything comes from me, everything flows down. The Ukrainians, on the other hand, have had a history of democracy. The Ukrainians were never serfs. Yeah. The Ukrainian people weren't serfs under their own Ukrainian government before, of course, Catherine the Great came in in 1757 and knocked the lard out of them. Yes. But the interesting thing is that Ukrainian culture, particularly around Kiev, is much older than Russian culture. Right. So the Kievian Rus were the original Viking Scandinavian inhabitants of Kiev. Oh, right, so that the, came down the river. That came down the river, yeah. exactly. That came down the Dnieper from yeah. the Baltic, yeah. right? Yeah. So Kiev is a much, much older city than Moscow. And in fact, many of the Ukrainians would argue that most colonial situations involve a more sophisticated nation taking over a less sophisticated nation, as a general rule. Mm. But in the Ukrainian-Russian thing, it was the opposite. But to get back to this idea of the conspiracies, you have that sort of deep Orthodox Slavism around Russia, yeah. which the Serbs share with the Russians. Deep Russian Orthodox religion, nationalism, Strange combination of both arrogance and victimhood at the same time. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it's a really, it's a really bizarre thing. I really noticed it playing soccer in Croatia. Very close out to that. If you are a footballer who tries, right? You know the way in Ireland, right? Yeah. You'll always pick the fellow who actually is the workhorse. Yeah. The first guy in the team is the guy who's the workhorse who absolutely go into every challenge, who won't back away. Yeah. Who, Give it 110%. But the, the Roy Keane, who might not be, yeah, yeah you're right. Like he, the, the Roy Keane might not be as talented as yeah. the others, but has something internally mm. that drives the team forward, right? In Croatia, he's always dropped. They always play the great footballers. So right. they, they love, the nat flash, yeah, they the love natural players, yeah. talent over effort. Right? And if you display effort, well, then you're not naturally talented yeah. enough. And as a consequence of that, you're not really part of the thing. And this is that strange combination of Nodem Slavs, that great idea of arrogance plus insecurity at the same time. Right, and that, okay. That, that I see a lot. I mean, amongst the Catholic Slavs, it's quite different, obviously, because they're Polish and they have a different sort of worldview, Slovakians, Poles. But that part of the world I find interesting. And again, that part of the world now, John, this week is going to be enormously consequential because this is the week the Ukrainians mount their counteroffensive. This is the one the week that everyone's been waiting for. This is what I want to ask you about. I mean, after your trip to Ukraine earlier on in the year yeah. and your recent trip to Poland, let's talk about this because this is fascinating yeah. after a bit of this. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. 
wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. So, Mark, you're just back from Poland and uh, talking to all your buddies out there. But we're coming out of the winter and the Eastern European winter is it's severe. proper, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And particularly in Ukraine, yeah. where the war kind of slowed down a bit. Now it's picking back up. Yeah. And, you know, just last week, the UK just sent over these long-range cruise missiles, which is a really big deal. It is a big deal. And Ukraine are gearing up for this new offensive. So what's the what's, word what's from the, the front word, line? The word, well, well it's, hard, it's hard to the front line, but from, from the, let's say from east of the Elba to, yes, to yeah, strategically yeah. place. From a safe, from a safe from a safe, from a safe place east of the Elba, exactly. From a cafe east of the Elba. <laughs> I've just realised that all my Croat mates, who a lot of them listen to the podcast on the island, yeah. they're going to kill me when I go there. So like, oh, what do you mean we don't have the power? You're not going to be picked for that football team. I'm not going to be picked for the soccer team. It's the, it's the Zlaren First eleven yeah. <laughs> football team, no, but it's uh, but it but it is something that I've always think that, that that like first certainly the Serbs and the Russians I know these are people who are capable of great hate and great love yeah. at the same time with the same person. Right. So they're like you know okay. they're, 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 you never very, know where you stand. Then. Yeah, exactly. But so so what what appears to be happening now is the Ukrainians have been waiting to amass an entirely new army, right? Mm. So rather than take those Western weapons that the West have been given the Ukrainians for the last six or eight months and meld them into the old army, what they have done is they've split their army into two. They've created a new army, which is entirely NATO trained. There's okay. about 80,000 to 90,000. This is an entirely new army. Were they training during the winter? During the winter. They were, tra okay. they were training everywhere in the UK. They were training in Germany. They were training in Poland. And in Poland, you're very, very aware of this, right? Yeah, yeah. And of course, for the Poles the Ukrainians have to win because if the Ukrainians don't win, the Polish view is the next stop is Poland. Next yeah, stop is yeah, Warsaw. of course. Yeah. So this is, this is very existential for them. Yeah. So this new Ukrainian army has been trained as an offensive army, not a defensive army, with all these new weapons that the mm. West have given them. And of course, the counteroffensive, which seems to have started last week around Bakhmut, mm. and you might have, you might have seen the, the Wagner divisions being not so much obliterated, but at least been pushed back by the Ukrainians. Yeah. So this is all the beginning of a process, although Zelensky is very much saying, oh, it hasn't started yet and don't worry and whatever. Yeah. He's probably buying time, he's feigning. It's all this is smoke and mirrors, right? Yeah, yeah. But the the key thing for the Ukrainians is that this counteroffensive has to go well for 
two reasons. One is it shifts momentum in the war. And when I say shifts momentum, it means that the Ukrainians are on the front foot, not the mm. back foot. And the hope, although I don't think it'll happen, is that that would bring the Russians closer to some sort of negotiating table. If, for example, the Ukrainians took Donbass, all of Donbass. Yeah. So that's that's, that's a tall order, though. It's a it? huge order. Yeah. Second thing is what the Ukrainians need to prove to the West, and this is a key thing, is that they can use the weapons the West has given them. Right. right. Because at the moment, the West have given them all these weapons. So the Ukrainians are means to prove to the mm. West that they can use it. Right. And the third thing is the Ukrainians are very much afraid of, it seems, is that the West loses interest. So the more the Ukrainians win in the counteroffensive, the more the West will say, OK, that has been money well spent. Now, the fear, of course, deep amongst Ukrainians who I've spoken to, is that the West really wants to turn Ukraine into a garrison. Right? Right. Now, interesting, we talk about Croatia, right? There is a model in my head which anybody who's au fait with a deep Yugoslav history will know, right? <laughs> in Croatia, there were four or 500,000 Serbs living in southern Croatia, very close to where yeah. I go during the summer. And they were called Krajinian Serbs. And they were brought in, now this is, this is historic, right? They were brought in by the Austrian-Hungarian Empire in order to defend the borders of Croatia against the Ottoman Turks. And they were Serbs, and the reason was because the Serbs were regarded as the best fighters in Europe. Right. So okay. they transplanted. The other way you think the Irish plantations, nothing like that ever happened anywhere else. Yeah. It happened all over the place. Right, yeah. So the Ottomans and the Austrians were fighting for hundreds of years just there in what is the Balkans, right? Mm. What is now... Croatia, Serbia, Bosnia, etc. And they deposited hundreds of thousands of Serb fighters there in a garrison province called Kraina. And that was the powder keg that was ignited in the Yugoslav war. And those Kraina Serbs okay. rebelled against Croatia because they found themselves in the Croatian state mm. and they set up their own state. And in 1995, on August the 5th, that was the area the Croats attacked and expelled those people. The Serbs backed off and you ended up with the Dayton Accord a wee bit later on. Yeah. Right? Now, we think that in the old days, those sort of things happened, that geopolitics was very much like blocks and moving things around a chessboard. Mm. There is a fear in Ukraine that Ukraine will be turned into a Krajina. So it'll be just a garrison for right. the West. It'll yeah. be a bulwark against Russia and it will be a highly militarized state from here on in. Yeah, this I is, can see that. If, yeah. So, if, for example, they win this counteroffensive, if, for example, the Russians negotiate in some shape or form, if they're given an off ramp, an exit ramp, but again, many people, certainly Poles, Czechs that I've spoken to, Serbs I've spoken to, say the Russians don't negotiate. They're mm. black and white. Mm. You know, the Kremlin mm. is black and white. It's either winning or it's losing. Yeah. And it's not in the in the in the middle. And of course, the thing the Ukrainians don't have is time. And the thing the Russians have is time. So, Explain that. Because the Ukrainians need to one, win back territory to tell the West, A, we can use the weapons. Yeah. To tell the West, yes, there is momentum. Yeah. To tell the West, yes, keep supporting us, right? Russians don't need this. So time is not on the Ukrainian side. They need a quick victory. But also, I, can I just jump in there as well? There is the, 
After that interview last week on CNN, Donald Trump's basically saying if if he gets in, I doubt if he in will. In one day, 24 hours. <laughs> yeah, but he's he's just going to withdraw all Precisely. support. And the Ukrainians are very Absolutely, well aware yeah. of it. Not yeah. all support, because I think there is a massive constituency yeah. in the old Republican Party. And even if it's not Trump, but, it's but you're the right. Republicans. But you are right. Would, you are right. I mean, yeah. Biden is very, very much part of, I mean, Biden says we will support Ukraine for as long as it takes. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. so the Ukrainian clock is ticking. Meanwhile, in Russia, in the Kremlin, Putin is playing for time. Yeah. Because his army isn't doing what they're supposed to be doing for the Russians on the front. But they have more soldiers and they have more time. And as long as Russia has never lost a war, okay, think about this. Russia has never lost a major war without some sort of internal turmoil. Yeah. So the reason the First World War they was the Soviet rebellion against yeah, them, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The only war that they lost without initial turmoil was the Sino-Russian War in 1905, where they got their arses kicked by the Japanese. Yeah. And that immediately caused a revolution, right? A revolution on the USS Potemkin, which was this big, big ship. Right. It was yeah. immortalized by Eisenberg's Soviet propaganda movie. But anyway, that's all their other Al shite that I know, right? Other Al shite that we can <laughs> we'll we keep, come back to that we'll keep from McKenna's. <laughs> this will be McKenna's this afternoon after a few scoops, right? So uh, the Ukrainian. By the way, I, I, I listen to this constantly, day in, day out. It's not just the podcast. <laughs> John has been listening for 45 years to just high octane horseshit. And, a, and another thing, John, I'm reading in this book. So it's like Macker, his nerd mate. Here's my nerd mate. He's really nice. Will you dance with him in the slow set? He's really good at sums. <laughs> but we come back. Um, so. The Ukrainians need a quick victory yeah. or a result. Yeah. Maybe the Russians not necessarily, unless, of course, there is an anti-Putin putsch in mm. the Kremlin. And nobody knows much about that. Nobody no, knows no. Whether, I mean, know, it's all rumours and conspiracies. Conspiracies. And Slavic course, conspiracies. And, but of course, yeah, exactly. Of yeah. Course, exactly. You know, it's like, you know, the Matryoshka dolls, you know, the yes, doll within yeah, the yeah. doll within the doll within the doll. But... And this is where the Americans and the Chinese come in. And this is where big geopolitics Yeah, go on, explain this, yeah. So the Chinese, you might notice in the last two or three weeks, have sent emissaries to Ukraine, Mm. obviously to Russia, but also to Poland, also to around the fringes, right? So the Chinese are probably thinking, hold on a second, it really suits us to have Russia in our back pockets because Russia will just turn into China's quarry, right? So it suits the Chinese. They have... Everything to gain from an alliance with Russia. Russia has nothing to gain except credibility. Mm. But also maybe the Chinese want to dial everything down and be seen as peacemakers, which they were, as you were saying the other week, in Saudi Arabia and Iran. Yeah. So they're yeah. they're changing. They're 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 they they've no real dog in the fight in the way the Europeans have. Yeah. And so basically the Chinese and the Americans have a significant role to play in the next couple of months. I mean, this thing, if the Ukrainian counteroffensive goes according to the Ukrainian plans. I mean, you could be in a situation where there's just so much pressure on Russia to do a deal. Yeah, you could just turn on a dime, couldn't it? Yeah, and that's yeah. why, so that's what I'm saying. This week is the most important geopolitical week globally and geostrategic week of the next maybe two years. Wow. What happens in the yeah. next couple of weeks in Ukraine? And then you've got to think, well, what does Ukraine look like? 
after? What's the Ukraine economy going to look like? Well, what are they aiming for? Well, this is the fascinating thing. They've, they've three models in their heads, right? Right. One is Germany after the Second World War, which is the Marshall Aid idea. Yeah. That's very much pushed by the European Union. The Americans are amazing after the Second World War. The Americans treat their allies worse yeah, yeah. than their enemies, right? So they treat Japan and Germany much better than Britain and France. It's an amazing mm. thing, right? They give them much more money. They give them much more industry. America did something extraordinary. They demanded that a certain percentage of German goods had to be bought by American goods after the war to mm. give the Germans an ability to rise up again. As opposed to the Brits who wanted to, you know, they wanted to, what they call pastoralize Germany. The British wanted to destroy all German industry forever and turn it into a pasture. Right. Do you know that? Big, a big farm. Big farm. They wanted to turn it into a big farm. They were, it was, that was just going to be. be. No industry, right? And the Americans said... I hear. know, I hear, right? So <laughs> that's one idea. Yeah, no, it's kind of mad stuff when you read about yeah. this. So that's one idea that, that that it becomes like Germany. Huge amount of aid goes in, massive amount of foreign investment goes in, and the Ukrainians become part of the European Union, mm. right? Well, actually, sorry, just to stop you there. I mean, Ukraine still is the, the breadbasket of, well, of, of the world. The, yeah, it's, but it was of the Soviet Union stuff. But it, it has the most, Ukraine and Argentina have the most fertile soil in the world. Yeah. Those two areas. So it could, you're absolutely right. Mm. Now, of course, it'd be quite interesting for the common agricultural policy if the Ukrainians get in, because that would completely destroy CAP. That's true, you'd yeah. Have all this cheap food coming from Ukraine. Yeah. It'd be an absolute boom for industrial workers in the West. And in, in Europe, but it would cause huge political problems. Yeah. So that's the first thing. So that's the sort of the nice template that looks and smells and feels European, very Brussels-like, mm. lots of committees, all that sort of stuff. But I don't think that's going to happen. Oh. I think a more interesting template for the Ukrainians would be something like South Korea. So South Korea is the most successful economy in the world, bar none. Right. And more interestingly, the South Koreans have gone from heavy industry to K-pop. Right? Yeah. And the reason yeah. K-pop's important, that's where you want to go. So right. societies need to go up the value of U-pop. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> U-pop, exactly. And Eurovision stuff, right? Okay. Oh, Eurovision Mary stuff, right? Joseph. But my point is, right, if you look at South Korean culture now, South Korean popular culture is unbelievably successful. You have K-pop, mm. you have all of Southeast Asia watches South Korean soap operas, right? They've created right, an entire yeah. entertainment industry. Look at look at Hollywood. South Koreans keep winning Oscars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All the time. So, yeah. so what you're thinking of, so the South Koreans have gone for, imagine South Korea was poorer than Ghana in 1965. Yeah. And it is now the most successful economy in the world. It also has a crazy neighbor. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. There isn't even a ceasefire in the Korean War. There's no treaty. Right, there's an yeah, understanding yeah. Yes, that they yeah, won't yeah. Actually, there's no there's no there's no treaty right so it's got a crazy neighbor which is always kind of nudged by china right yeah it is in a precarious getting crazier as well getting crazier yeah like that wants to create nukes that wants to bomb south korea yeah. so it's got a massive military but it has an amazingly amazingly successful economy based on a thing called the chai balls and chai balls were big government run industrial companies which became things like samsung right okay? yeah it was top down always government orchestrated, right? So that's another model the Ukrainians mm. got. And the reason the Ukrainians could go for that is it's a big enough country. It's like 40, 45 million people. It's a big market. 
They could go for the South Korean one. They might not want to, because typically Europeans are like, well, I'd much prefer a German model because they look more like us than yeah. a South yeah, Korean yeah, yeah, model. Yeah. But I think it could go to South Korean. But what's clear if you read Ukrainian, the Ukrainian press in English, the model they have argued for is the Israeli model. Oh, right? okay. So what which they, is what? Which is a, a heavily militarized civilian population with two or three years of military service for everyone mm. all the time, right? So if you think what the genesis of Israel is, not right now, but before all the peace treaties with the Arab countries, was a tiny country surrounded by enemies. That was their David and oh, Goliath Yeah, story always on a war footing. That they to- yeah, that they told themselves and was actually true. Yeah. So from 1948, certainly to 1998, 2008 maybe, that was definitely the case. Mm. So they built up this extraordinary military and that became the core engine of everything in Israel. The Ukrainians say, this is our model, right? That we will become a, yes, a civilian population, but always in the war footing Mm. because Russia ain't going to go away. Then what the Israelis did was they created this unbelievable startup tech industry. And in fact, if you want to read about this, there's a book called The Startup Nation by a soul singer. Very yes. good, right? Yeah. And the technology from the army, which was heavily invested by the state, drip-fed into the civilian technology, which then combined with Silicon Valley money and Wall Street money, created a situation where there were more Israeli startups floated on NASDAQ in the last 10 years than all of European countries put together. Wow. And how mad is wow. that, right? Yeah. Now that's, things have changed in the last four kind or five years. Of that, isn't it? Yeah. But again, that's what the Ukrainians are talking about. Now that is very unpalatable to many Europeans to be walking around saying our model is Israel. Yeah. Because most Europeans rightly say all very well on the good side, you know, you've created this society or whatever, but you're occupying somebody else's country. Yeah. And is that tolerable? Yeah. And possibly what the Ukrainians are saying is we will always be sort of occupying parts of Donbass if there's a Russian element. That's just optics though, isn't it? It's just, I think it's just optics, but it's, yeah. it is it is fascinating. So what we're looking at is a massive country involved in an existential war, which is not that far away from us. As I've always said, you know, you, you take that flight to Poland and you just yeah. get the bus. Like it's really quite close. Yeah of which the next days and weeks are going to be so fundamental, but not just to the projection of Ukraine and Slavic Europe, okay, Mm. that part. But if you think about it, you know, for many people, Ukraine is like the Spanish Civil War that you take aside. So in the Spanish Civil War, you had allied with Franco, you had Mussolini and Hitler. And on the democratic side, you had various Democrats, you had various left-wing agitators, you had Marxists, you had communists, you had socialists, right? And of course, what happened in the Spanish Civil War is that the West, Britain, France, didn't give the Democrats enough weaponry. And Franco won. And when Franco won... This emboldened Hitler and Mussolini to say, we and our fascist ideology can win the day. So people who have framed Ukraine have framed it in the context of the Spanish Civil War, that unless we in the West support Zelensky, 
and the Ukrainian government to the hilt. What happened in the Spanish Civil War could happen again, which is that the forces of fascism, in parenthesis Putin and his mm. mates, win, and this emboldens them, because without the victory in the Spanish Civil War, many historians say there would never have been a Second World War. Because having won in Spain, yeah. Yeah. they said yeah. we can win again. And they also said, having won in Spain, the forces of democracy and liberalism are Mickey Mouse. They can't fight. So that's what's at stake over the next couple of weeks. Not small potatoes, Johnny Boy. Not small potatoes. No, not indeed. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.